0: Right, Hi Fi Nation for Slate Plus. Today I'm joined by two friends of mine, both philosophers Matthew Noah Smith of Northeastern University and Mark Schroeder of USC. We are going to be talking about John Rawls's distinction between procedural and substantive justice, and we're going to apply that to the case of the use of acquitted and uncharged conduct in sentencing. The subject of the episode, The Loophole, which you've just heard. Yeah, so Mark, why don't you start by introducing yourself to people?
1: Yeah, I'm Mark Schroeder. I'm professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California.
0: Good. Mark, why don't you just tell everybody first, how do we know each other?
1: Uh, We go way back. Uh, When uh, Barry first moved out to graduate school in Princeton, I had Barry and his wife, Shannon, for dinner the first night, and he complained about my Midwestern tacos for years to come.
0: You also made some pies for us, too, I remember. I don't know if there were complaints about that, but I remember the pies.
2: I've tried to black that out. (laughs) Okay. My name is Matthew Noah Smith. I'm an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Northeastern University in the Department of Philosophy and Religion.
0: So could you help explain to me this distinction between procedural justice and substantive justice, and then a little bit about how it comes up in like Rawls and so forth?: Sure. It's
2: easiest actually to start with substantive justice because that's the one that we're most familiar with in a lot of ways. Substantive justice is an account of how the world ought to look if it were a just world. So for example, a familiar form of substantive justice is just a simple egalitarianism. Everyone should have the same. That would be a theory, a substantive theory of justice or a theory of substantive justice. Procedural justice is The view that an outcome is just if the procedure met certain standards, certain standards of justice, regardless of what the outcome is. Most people, when they think about justice, they think about outcomes. They look at how the world is right now and not how the world got to be that way. And even if they think about how the world got to be that way, they assess how the world got to be that way in terms of how the world is. But procedural justice says the normative character of the world, whether it's just or not, depends entirely on the process that made the world how it is.
0: The reason I got interested in this distinction is because I noticed people's opinions about whether justice was done in the Lombard case really pulls apart. For some, what really mattered was whether Hartley and Lombard got prison time the right amount of prison time, for the murders. It didn't matter how that happened as long as it did. This seemed to me a judgment of substantive justice and a disregard for procedural justice. But on the other hand, there were those that thought it was an egregious violation of justice to do this to defendants, regardless of whether they were guilty or not. And so it seemed like they thought justice consisted of following procedures. This was exactly the issue that John Rawls was concerned with. So if you're more of a fan of procedural justice, it's an open question. How do you justify a particular procedure?
1: There are two different ways of thinking about which kinds of procedures are just. And so the way I explain this to my students is I start with a cake cutting example. I ask my students, I pass out imaginary slices of cake to everybody in the room, and I put them in pairs. And I have them decide how they're going to decide up who's going to get each part of that slice of cake. And inevitably, many of the students converge on the principle of I cut, you choose. One person splits the cake and the other person decides which half they get. That's widely agreed to be a fair way of dividing up a piece of cake. But there's two different ways of thinking about why it's a fair way of dividing up a cake. On one way of thinking about it, it gives the incentives to the person cutting to slice as close to the middle as they can. Because they know that if they don't cut close to the middle, the other person will choose the bigger slice. And so on that way of thinking about it, it's like this rule consequentialist way of thinking about it, that the point of the procedure is that results in the fairest outcomes. But on a different way of thinking about the procedure, it's not the kind of outcome it leads to that makes I cut you choose a fair procedure. Rather, it's because nobody can complain. Because if you complain that you got a smaller piece, that's because you were the one who uh, chose it or because you're the one who cut it in a way that was that way. So on this way of thinking about, I cut, you choose, it's a good procedure, not because it results in equal outcomes that are fair, but rather because it's the kind of procedure that everybody can agree is a good procedure.
2: There's another way we can think about procedural justice though, where we say, look, the process really matters, but also the outcome matters. So think about a trial. We think that a trial could both fail to be just because the proper procedure wasn't followed, But we could also think that a trial fails to be just because even if all the proper procedures are followed, an innocent person being found guilty is an injustice. So that's kind of a mixed view, right? And then, of course, looping right back to where we began, someone might have the view that, look, process schmossess, process whatever, procedure procedure. what really matters is the outcome. And what really matters is that we make sure that the right people get allocated what they ought to get allocated, which is to say that uh, depending on some principle of justice, whoever gets what share is allotted to them actually gets that share and not something else.
0: So is a procedure just because everyone accepts it and no one gets to complain? On that criteria... Sentencing for unconvicted conduct is clearly procedurally unjust because those who are subject to it have a lot to complain about. But if a procedure is just when it generates the most substantively just outcomes, following the rule that gets the best results, in the criminal justice system, what does that mean? It has to mean convicts the most actually guilty people and acquitting the actually innocent people. But if that's the criteria... It's not clear to me that sentencing someone for unconvicted conduct is that bad let's let, let me describe the particular procedure in uh, that's permissible in the law right now and uh, and see what you think about it and uh, its relationship to like this issue of substantive justice versus uh, independently justifiable procedural justice um, and the and the and the practice is this um, for various procedural reasons, sometimes you can't convict somebody. Um, that you have either a lot of evidence or you know. Let's just say we know that they're guilty. Um, The the examples that keep coming up in the law are like um, murder trials against gangsters, right? So which the gangsters can be much more easily convicted of tax evasion or racketeering. um, But the actual murder cases are... You know, there's jurisdictional problems. There's the, there's you know, th- there's a lot of reasons why people aren't um, convicted for murder cases. Um, uh, I've come across cases where you have um, individuals who clearly murdered their spouse, got all of the financial benefits from it, um, but they've never been able to find the body, um, and it, it happened ambiguously across different weird state lines, right? But so um, sometimes there are cases where the state courts. Um, seriously err. Um, and because of procedural reasons, cases are dismissed. But then the federal courts bring people back on some other charge. And then um, after they're convicted of a separate charge, a judge can then go back and sentence an individual for a crime that they were either acquitted of or never charged for, for all these kinds of procedural reasons. People immediately look, look, immediately look at that and say,
1: so they're not literally sentenced for the other crimes, yeah. but rather they're uh, the sentencing guidelines. Yeah. They are given greater sentences within the allowable guidelines yeah. right. uh, uh, on the basis of these other acquitted. Yeah.
0: And you're allowed. But but the judges are allowed to cite those other things. Right. Yes. And so one of the cases that. That's,
1: yeah. So it's really as if yeah. they've been sentenced for crimes of which they were not convicted. That's right.
0: And 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 judges say, well, look, here, here's a clear case where we think that's OK. Um We've had cases where gangsters um, who have been brought to trial have, during the trial, have um, threatened or extorted jurors, prosecutors, right, and have committed various things that um, at sentencing, surely a judge can say, hey, during this trial, there have been a lot of illegal shenanigans, right? And I'm going to sentence you for a longer sentence as a result of that. Um, Surely, I don't have to then... put you on for another trial, right, Um, and try to convict you of all of these other things that I have all this evidence that you've done in my courtroom, and so on. Of course, um, on the face of it, however, you know, lots of bipartisan, and when I tell people that this is a practice, they say, that's just abominable. How can they sentence you for a crime that they're never charging you of or that you've already been acquitted for at the state level? This looks like a double jeopardy kind of thing, and that's bad. Right. So when I looked into this, I thought, well, what if it turns out? And if, and as far as I can tell, this is true. If it turns out that substantively speaking, this is just an issue of judges' discretion. Right. They can not do that, and a, a lot of judges don't. And in fact, most cases, judges don't actually <laughs> convict on the basis of, 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 of um, yeah, of. Uncharged or uncharged conduct or un- ac- acquitted conduct. Um, they only do it in a very special set of cases. Um, uh, and in those cases, um, let's just stipulate, because we're philosophers, people are substantively guilty, right? Um, and how do we, how, it's very easy for people to say, well, it's still an unjust thing, right? They have some problem with this kind of, following this kind of procedure. Um, Whereas, in fact, it actually gets, s- s- by, by stipulation, only guilty people, right? How should we think about the morality of this?
1: Well, let me draw a comparison. Mm-hmm. Suppose you've been convicted for tax evasion 15 years ago. You served your time. And now there's some circumstantial evidence that you have murdered your spouse. Should the judge be allowed to sentence you without a conviction, without meeting the standards for conviction in the later case, uh, on the basis of the fact that you have an earlier conviction. Uh, what you need to do if you want to justify the sentencing process is you need to figure out what the difference might be between those two cases. Because any uh, uh, whatever it is that makes it more likely that guilty people are given larger sentences in cases where they have one conviction and another case of of sufficient evidence to bring a charge uh, will also apply in cases where somebody has one conviction of an earlier tax evasion and then a later case of sufficient evidence to bring a charge. Uh, so you need to be very careful in thinking about how it is that you're going to justify it solely on the basis of more often sentencing people for things of which they're guilty uh, in order to not have the result in this kind of case.
0: Um, so you're thinking in the case that you've described, it's a, a case that we should think of as unjust, just as a description.
1: I think that when people are thinking that the process is unjust, yeah. what they're thinking is that this case yeah. is a case in which it would clearly be unjust. Yeah, we shouldn't reduce the standard of evidence required for conviction in subsequent offenses.
0: And sometimes it's not even a matter of lower standards of evidence. I mean, there's, um, by what we mean by evidence, right? By by what philosophers mean by ev- evidence, is like the things that you know, right? Because in court cases, you throw out evidence, like, because it violated some, you know, like, cop found something without a warrant so you like threw it out but then like they get convicted on something else and the judges can use like presumably like oh yeah we have that evidence we know you did this other thing too like i mean i couldn't admit it it's we can't, we can't admit it in court but i know you did this other thing right um and uh, and in that case it's almost like you know like re- really if we give the benefit of the doubt to judges what they're doing is I'm putting people who are, in fact, guilty, I'm closing a loophole. One way to describe it is they're saying, I'm closing a loophole in the law. Um, But another way of describing it is to say, no, this is a loophole in the law that allows the government or judges to exercise a kind of power that you're not allowed to um, procedurally to exercise over people.
1: So one way of thinking about it is you're you're drawing attention to cases in which evidence might be thrown up, for example, because police uh, collected evidence inappropriately or because uh, prosecutors... Uh, Pressure witnesses. Um, Now, part of the reason that we have rules against those things uh, is not what the results we whether we succeed at sentencing the guilty or exonerating the innocent in a particular case, but rather because of what kind of moral hazards they create for the behavior of police and prosecutors in future cases. So, if we have a sentencing guideline which allows judges to sentence people for crimes for which they're charged, even when evidence is thrown up for procedural grounds. That can create excellent incentives for prosecutors and police to behave in ways uh, of collecting evidence that would otherwise be inappropriate, so long as they're confident enough of getting at least one conviction.
0: So we have things like uh, arrest. you got to give the Miranda warning, right? Like that's part of a procedure that people have to go through um, in the courtroom the procedure is we have to, um, whatever is presumption of innocence, right? That's sort of a procedural thing, right? Um, We're saying that individuals have to disregard a lot of prior's right like so one way of putting that is like the fact that somebody is brought to arrested and brought to court there's some pretty high probability that they're like if you just do like the f- statistical frequencies a pretty high probability that they're guilty but like you're supposed to disregard that I- in court and that's a procedural thing right is, is are those two ways of justifying procedures kind of in play as well in thinking about whether or not any particular procedure in criminal justice is a, a just procedure
1: They could be. So, for example, if you think that all of criminal procedure is justified by the outcomes, then you would think case by case about each individual element of procedure or perhaps about packages of them together and compare them to alternative packages and see whether that results in the best ratio of cases where you get the right outcome uh, substantively versus cases where you get the wrong outcome substantively. And likewise, in the cases between the ratio of which cases you get the wrong outcome by convicting an innocent person, in which case you get the wrong outcome by acquitting a guilty person. On the other hand, it might be that some of those pieces of procedure are not best thought of in that way, that they're not part of producing the best outcome in terms of convictions of the guilty and acquittals of innocent people, but rather are part of some independent standard of how we expect people to be fairly treated. For example, asking people to be read their Miranda rights might be concerned with uh, how police treat innocent people who are not brought up in the, room, in the courtroom and could be part of a, establishing a fair procedure that has other independent value independently of convictions of the guilty and acquittals of the innocent. Obviously, it's not just a bad thing for an innocent person to be convicted. It's a bad thing for an innocent person to be put on trial. It's a bad thing for an innocent person to be arrested. It's a bad thing for them to have their home searched uh, or to be harassed by police. Uh, all of those things are bad things for innocent people to experience. And so among the values uh, that are gonna be at stake in the procedure are values that protect uh, the rights of innocent people, not to have these other kinds of bad things happen to them. Now, one particular way you might think about that is that all of these cases are exercises of government power over people who live in that country. And if you committed a crime, you might think you're susceptible. It's fair for the government to exercise power against you. But for all the people who are innocent, when the government exercises power over them, that's something that you might think that people need to be protected against.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's great. So what you're helping me out with is that that there's all kinds of other values that the procedures are in place to uphold and those should be thought of as substantive, right? Because I was thinking what substantive justice is. It, in the criminal con- justice context is like really clear. It's getting the bad guys and getting the good guys Off, You know, if they're being charged and that's it. And that's the standard by which you should evaluate procedures. And what you're helping me out with here is that actually, no, we shouldn't think of just those two things as the only two substantive things that procedures are there safeguarding, right?
2: Process really matters. And we want those processes to reflect really, really important values. Like, for example, people having a voice, like, for example, the rules being public and transparent. Like, for example, uh, the uh, possibility to, in this case, challenge one's accusers. How can you challenge a judge who's accusing you of these things? You can't. At the very least, the power imbalance is so great that the challenge isn't really a challenge at all, but more of a provocation.
0: Is there something to the concern, do you think? What we're really worried about is judges' discretion, right? Right too much power is given, like the mere fact that they're able to do this. If it turns out, in fact, that they do it very rarely, and they do it in cases where it's really just the the people are, in fact, guilty, and it, it turns out that their standard judges' individual standards of evidence are actually quite high, it's almost as it's high as, as trial. Like, they're permitted by law to just use preponderance of evidence to do it, but in fact, judges, because they're um, good people, something like that, and just people, only do it in very high crime ways. But um, that then, uh, if I if I brought that to people's attention, they say, no, there's something I still think is wrong, right? Is there something to the idea that the mere fact that we're permitting judges to do this, even if they don't in fact do it all that often or only do it in cases where there's substantive justice involved? Um, is that a consideration?
2: All discretion, uh, the exercise of decision-making after the point at which a rule runs out. The worry I have about discretion, um, so there's two worries about discretion then. The first worry is that police officers, prosecutors, and judges just ignore the rules, where there's in fact a clear decision that the rules require, but when we talk about police officers exercising discretion or prosecutors exercising discretion or judges exercising discretion, what they're doing is just ignoring the rules and saying, it's what I want. That I think is obviously unjust, but let's put, let's put, so let's put that one aside and let's put aside, let's consider the, the edge cases as it were. Um, if you have too many of these cases, what you end up with is you end up with, um, evidence that we need more rules we need more robust institutions and then might that way might sound like oh my god more bureaucracy but no in fact you just need more rules and you need to probably resource the actual material conditions of those institutions better so you have to actually create the the buildings you have to hire the staff you have to you know get the computers get the paperwork get all that stuff out there and that's the only way in which um you're going to eliminate the over-application of discretion in these indeterminate cases. You actually just need to make more rules. Can I just say one last thing about that, where I actually do have thought about this a lot? Um, I actually do think that the material conditions of procedural justice, in particular, the material conditions of criminal justice really matter. And I think people should talk about it more. Philosophers should talk about it more. By which I mean, I actually think... The literal stuff that's required to get criminal justice right, by which I mean the buildings, the courtrooms, the staff, the computers, the paper, all of that stuff, the web pages, you name it, all that stuff, all of it, we need. We, that's underinvested in which means that if you don't actually have the material necessary to make real, purely formal rules, then the rules never actually get applied. And that's where discretion happens. So if you don't have enough, you literally need enough public defenders. You need defense attorneys. If there are not enough defense attorneys, then there won't, the rules won't get applied. And that's how you'll end up with a lot more prosecutorial discretion if you don't have the bill enough space and enough judges and enough social workers and everyone else who makes a justice system run properly, then that in that's where power asserts itself and discretion is applied. And the reason why it's applied is that they say, Oh, look, um, the rules run out here. Why do the rules run out there? Well, because like, No one applies the rules here or no, or the rules are applied this way. And so the way the rules are applied, set the boundary conditions. of Yeah.
0: We can't afford to go to trial. So we have to plea. Bingo. And so 95% plea bargains. That's what you're
2: talking about. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And I think that philosophers don't think of that as a philosophical issue, but I think it's a central philosophical issue because rules have to be realized in the material if you don't look at the material conditions of the realization of the rules then you don't understand what the rules actually are in daily life how they're how what what their actual what their boundaries are in fact and yeah, I think- it's
0: just weird because paradoxically what, what you're arguing for is more money going into criminal justice that's what you're arguing for right and then one of the i mean the big complaint is that it's just already big and sprawling and there's just too much stuff. But of course the answer to, but, but, but really where it's sprawling is on the prosecutorial and the, and the, uh, and the policing side. Totally
2: agree with you. Totally agree with you. And, and, and what, what we need is more public defenders. We need better resource public defenders. We need better uh, ways to track evidence, for example. I mean, there's no reason why uh, discovery in, in criminal justice, in, in, there's no reason why. Discovery in criminal cases uh, has to be done in the ridiculous way that it's done today, where uh, a public defender might just be handed their discovery on the day of the trial. Like, that's there's no reason why that would be the case. I mean, it, why not make uh, we could just digitize all evidence, right? And then just by the stroke of a key, at the very least, uh, that gets transferred over or something like that, or something like that. I don't know. Actually, I don't know. I don't know enough about. The, I don't know enough about the material conditions of this, of this, but I actually think it's something we should talk about. Um, and I think that, that, yeah, I am arguing that we should have a more robust criminal justice system because I actually think criminal justice um, uh, protects certain values.